Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Judd Brewer. Dr. Judd is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. His TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has over 16 million views on YouTube. He's also an associate professor at Brown University and the executive medical director at ShareCare. Dr. Judd's new book, Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind, is now a New York Times bestseller. In the episode, he shares a three-step approach for breaking any habit, why willpower doesn't work, common misconceptions about what it takes to make or break a habit, and more. Before we get to my interview with Dr. Judd, I want to make you aware of an incredible resource, the Health Investment Membership. I created the Health Investment Membership to help you finally achieve the weight loss, nutrition, fitness, and health goals you have for yourself without causing yourself undue stress or headaches. After working with dozens of clients, I realized that success boils down to three critical A's, as I like to call them. Awareness, attitude, and accountability. First of all, you have to become aware of what actually works when it comes to things like nutrition and fitness in order to lose weight, keep the weight off long-term, have more energy, and just feel overall like a million bucks. Secondly, you need to be sure you're adopting the right attitude if you want your results to last. Your mindset is either going to make or break your lasting success. Your attitude, your mindset, whatever you want to call it, matters a lot. And finally, you're going to need accountability and support along the way, which you get a ton of inside the membership. Not only do you get to join a private Facebook group with members who share your same goals, but I also host either a weekly Q&A or accountability call to keep you on track. Inside the Health Investment Membership, you get exclusive access to these three A's, which I call my 3A approach. That means you're finally going to be able to lose those 5 to 50 pesky pounds keep the weight off, and start showing up as the best, most energized, healthiest version of yourself. To learn more and join, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash join, or just click through the link in the show notes. One more thing, if you've been enjoying the Health Investment Podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd write an Apple Podcast review. Reviews not only provide me with great feedback, but they also help the podcast to gain traction and get discovered by new listeners. To leave a review, simply visit thehealthinvestment.com slash review. It only takes about five minutes to do, and I truly can't thank you enough for your support. All right, let's get right to my interview with Dr. Judd. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. 
If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Jed. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I was just mentioning that I've seen you on, I feel like, every single podcast there is these days. So it's really an honor that you are giving your time to us here at the Health Investment. Well, thanks for having me. I'd love if you could start by just sharing with listeners what led you to become an addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist in the first place. Yes. Well, some of it was that I didn't know how my own mind worked. And so my first day of medical school, I started meditating. And, you know, as I went through my MD, PhD program, started learning a lot more about how my own mind worked. And by the time I got to the end of medical school, I was seeing all these connections between the Buddhist psychology that I was learning and uh, what my patients were suffering with, especially patients with addiction. And I felt this strong proclivity or this strong draw to, uh, to actually work with folks with addictions, especially because we didn't have a lot of great treatments. Um, you know, there aren't many medications that are that helpful, uh, you know, especially for things like alcohol use disorder and, and stimulants and, you know, et cetera. And, and they were speaking the same language that I'd been learning through my own mindfulness training. And so it just really felt like a natural fit uh, to try to do some, try to do some work there, both clinically and also from a research perspective. Hmm. What led you to start that mindfulness training to begin with? <laughs> I was suffering myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was- yeah. I was pretty stressed out at the beginning of medical school. Yeah. So you were just drawn to, there's got to be something to kind of calm my mind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. Interesting. Well, and I know, so I was also mentioning that I just really wanted to dive into habits because I think they're just kind of central and key to everything. And especially I work with clients through nutrition coaching and I have a membership and I work with them one-on-one. Um, and we talk about habits exhaustively. So I'm, gr- I'm excited to hear your take on all of this. Um, what, how do you define a habit? I know there are probably different descriptions out there, but what, what would you say a habit is? Yeah, functionally, it's basically a behavior that's, that's automatized, something that we do without thinking. Mm, okay. So then the idea is to stop ourselves and figure out what is it that we're thinking that lead to to break the habit or what is like, how do you get into that whole process of breaking a habit then I guess? Yeah. Well, it starts with kind of understanding which habits are helpful and which ones aren't. So, you know, the vast majority of our habits are pretty helpful. If you think of, you be automatizing behavior to the point where it helps us be able to um, not, you know, basically not be exhausted every day. So imagine waking up every morning and having to relearn everything from standing up to putting on your clothes, to walking, to making breakfast, you know, we'd be exhausted by noon. Mm -hmm. So the idea about 
uh, behind automaticity is that it helps us learn things. I think of it as set and forget. We can set down the habit. We can forget about the details. And that frees up our brain to learn new things. So most habits are really helpful. You know, I don't want to have to relearn how to tie my shoes every day. Mm-hmm. So then I guess even a bad habit is serving you in some way because it's kind of freeing up some of your mind space and automatizing a part of your life. Is that how, because I've heard, you know, people will say all of your habits kind of serve you in some way. So yeah. is that the idea? Yeah. Well, so let's take an extreme example of a bad habit. Smoking cigarettes, not helpful ever. It, it Not a single cigarette. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. But When we were 13, so on average, like the folks in my smoking studies, when they started smoking, it was it was around the age of 13, and so it served a purpose back then. And generally, people relate this to wanting to be cool at school or rebel against their parents or try something dangerous. I don't know why, you know. I mean, that's just part of the teenage brain is like, oh, that's dangerous. I'm going to try that, you know. So right, uh, you know. So these things get set up and inadvertently get laid down as habits, smoking being an example of one that's just not helpful. Uh, it might have it felt helpful because it helped somebody fit in at the time. But, you know, even with that first cigarette, it's not helpful for their body. Mm-hmm. Right. I guess I was thinking more like when I've gotten into a bad habit of not going for a walk in the day or not exercising I'm kind of freeing up time for myself in other areas. So I guess maybe in some way it is serving me or it's serving the lazy side of me, but at the same time, it's not serving my health. Yes. Yes. So another, you know, another aspect of habits, and this is actually leads us into to breaking them is understanding not only how they get set up. So they get set up based on some type of reward that we get. So, you know, if we're learning to smoke cigarettes, the reward is that we're being cool. Uh, simple one, probably that most people can relate to is we set up the uh, reward value of, of eating cake when we're kids, for example. So there's something rewarding about going to birthday parties and, and hanging out with friends. And usually there's music and there are games and there are presents and there's a lot of fun. And so our brain sets up this reward value of eating cake, you know, usually at a, at a pretty young age. And that gets reinforced over and over with every party we go to. It even gets reinforced in adulthood when we go to celebrations and, you know, somebody celebrating something, there's usually cake there. So that reward value is what drives, it kind of sets a habit and then drives it going forward. Now, the reason I mention that is that our brain actually sets up a reward hierarchy between different behaviors. So it's going to, it helps us again, be efficient in our lives. It helps us say, okay, given a choice between A and B, A is more rewarding, so I'm going to do it. So for example, you know, cake versus broccoli. Our brain says, Mm -hmm. oh, cake tastes better than broccoli. You know, and so we have this inclination to eat cake. Now there's a survival uh, piece to that where cake is more calorically dense. So our, our survival brains say, you know, get as many calories in there as quickly as possible. But there's also just that, that reward value, the taste and the association that we've made with these. So understanding that that habits are set up through this reward process helps us actually start to understand them from a breaking bad habits perspective. Uh, I'll pause there for a second. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, yeah, that makes tons of sense. So the key to breaking bad habits is really understanding how habits are formed and how they're perpetuated. 
if we don't uh, tap into how rewarding a behavior is right now, we're going to just keep doing it habitually. We can't change it. So for example, often people think, oh, you know, I need to stop eating. I need to stop overeating. Let's use that as an example. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, I just need to use my willpower to stop overeating. The problem is that willpower is the, it, it relies on the youngest and the weakest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective. So even if somebody has strong willpower, it, you know, everybody's willpower fails at some point, I guess, except for Mr. Spock, who, you know, was really <laughs> you know, not driven by emotion. And, and all he did was, you know, use his willpower part of his Vulcan brain or whatever that, whatever that was. So if we don't tap into how rewarding behavior is, we're never going to change it. And I'll give a concrete example. We can use overeating here. So my lab has done studies with, um, with basically with mindfulness-based uh, training programs, like app-based mindfulness programs. And we have this app called Eat Right Now, where we could actually study the reward value of overeating. And we would have people overeat and we would have them pay attention as they overate. And it only took 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention as they overate for that reward value to drop below zero, where they mm -hmm. shifted that behavior from overeating to not overeating. And so mm -hmm. that, that shows as an example, how if we actually tap into the neuroscience of how reward, you know, what the reward value is of a behavior, and that, that this is what drives habitual behavior, we can actually change habits pretty effectively and relatively quickly. So the idea is to get just super in touch with, in that example, how you feel, and you probably don't feel great after overeating. So just to really focus on that, to break that reward. Bingo. Yeah, that's it. And it's really feeling into the direct experience. It's not thinking, oh, I shouldn't overeat or I shouldn't smoke the cigarette. But what's it feel like when I overeat? What's it taste like when I smoke the cigarette? What's the, my breath smell like? All of that stuff. Okay. I'm so glad you brought up the idea of willpower because that's been one of the biggest game changers for me and my own health and is realizing that willpower is just not really a thing. Um, I remember reading, do you know Benjamin Hardy's work at all? I don't. Okay. Well, he actually wrote a book called Willpower Doesn't Work. He had a <laughs> Great. It's true. Yeah. Exactly. And he had originally written an, uh, written an article in Medium, which is where I discovered him. But that's essentially the entire premise. And that was at a time when I was just trying to have better willpower and using focusing my whole nutrition and fitness life around willpower. And so that was pretty liberating to know that I'm not broken. It actually just doesn't work. Uh, so I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a, a hilarious skit from the 1970s. Do you know who Bob Newhart was? Yeah. 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 So there's a skit called uh, basically just stop it where <laughs> this woman walks into the therapist's office and basically you can imagine how it goes. You know, Newhart's the therapist woman walks in and says, I have this problem. He leans over his desk and says, just stop it. You know, <laughs> and it goes, they go back and forth. You know, she's like, what about this? And he goes, just stop it. What about this? Just stop it. You know, and so imagine how great it would be if I could, uh, if it worked, then right. I could have single visits with every single one of my patients and I would, they wouldn't need to see me again. I could mm -hmm. say, you know, just stop smoking, just stop overeating, just stop being anxious, stop worrying. But that's not how our brains work. 
And it's funny because when you say that from a perspective of a practitioner saying it, it sounds silly. But then we say those things to ourselves all the time, I think. And then we wonder what's wrong with us and why are we broken? Why can't we just stop it? So I think it's just really helpful to know it's much deeper than that. And there is hope for everyone. It's just kind of figuring out, like you said, how your brain works. Yes. And I want to highlight something you just said, because it's really important. You know, we often think that, oh, it's this, you know, here's the diet program and I have failed the program and the program just says, well, maybe you should sign up for another year. It's not, it's not that we've failed the program. It's that the program was set up on a false premise, which is Mm -hmm. typically around willpower. So it's really, you know, it's not anything that's broken in us. It's only a problem of just not understanding how our minds work. And if we can learn how our minds work, then we can work with them and not right. blame it on a, a failure on our part or that we're deficient or there's something broken in us. Right. And I, I think that's so well said. And my issue with the whole kind of diet culture thing and why I do what I do is to help people really break out of that through small, gradual changes and accountability. Uh, but it then becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy, I feel, because one diet doesn't work. So then you try another one and another one, and then you're just continuing to reinforce that you are a failure at all of these things. But like you said, they're not really set up for you to succeed. They want you to continue to sign up for year after year, uh, which is a big problem. Um, Going back to the overeating example, because that was really fascinating to me. So is it enough then when you just realize, I feel terrible, when I overeat, is that enough to break the habit? Or are you supposed to replace that habit with some type of new habit? Great question. So I actually uh, write about this a lot in in my Unwinding Anxiety book, where you know it's kind of a three-step process. First, we have to understand how our minds work and basically map out our habit. The second step is tapping into this piece that we were talking about around reward value. We've got to see how unrewarding the current behavior is. If it's still rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. And then the third step, I call this finding the BBO, the bigger, better offer. And because our brains are going to find, you know, they're going to say, okay, you know, give me something rewarding. I'm going to keep doing that. When we start to see how unrewarding the old habit is, our brain says, well, give me something better. Yet, we can't just replace it with something that is a little more rewarding, but still drives the same process. We've got to give our brains things that are intrinsically rewarding that, uh, that don't drive the process in itself. And so I think of these coming in two flavors. One is curiosity and one is kindness. And both of these feel experientially very different than other habits. So for example, with anxiety or worry, that tends to feel more closed down, more contracted. Uh, When we're craving chocolate, cake, or a cigarette, that feels closed and contracted. Uh, Here, curiosity and kindness, they both feel more open and expanded. You can't be closed and open at the same time. So if you can find something that helps you open up, and curiosity is my favorite one, that can actually help us step out of these old habits, but at the same, same time, replace them with something that we already have, that is intrinsic, that it's just something that we need to awaken, like curiosity. So, yeah, so that's interesting. So how would that work with the overeating example? Is the curiosity just asking yourself a bunch of questions? Why am I doing this? What is, how is this serving me? Great question. So it's not about the why. The why tends to be a, uh, a rabbit hole because, you know, our brain says, oh, maybe what was in my childhood <laughs> or whatever mm-hmm. you know, that's leading yeah. me to do this. 
it's not, you know, a, a behavior is perpetuated through how rewarding it is right now. And so I have people focus on the what rather than the why. So what's happening? What am I getting from this? And so that's the question that I have folks ask and bring curiosity to. It's like, I'm overeating right now. What am I getting from this? And not thinking about it intellectually, but really feeling into their direct experience. Like, what's this feel like? Like you are like you mentioned, it doesn't generally feel very good when we overeat. Mm-hmm. So it, same can be applied to any habit. So if I'm, uh, if I'm worrying, for example, you know, what am I getting from this? Is it keeping my family member safe if I'm worried about them you know, being in danger? No, it, worrying doesn't keep people safe. Um, is it solving the problem? No, because my planning and thinking brain goes offline when I'm worried. So it's really feeling into our experience and especially things like worry, they tend to make us more anxious. So, so we can see, oh, this isn't actually that rewarding at all and helps us become disenchanted with those things. So that's that's tapping into the reward value piece which then, you know, which is really dependent on being curious, like what's actually happening. Then we can actually bring in curiosity itself to uh, moments where, for example, we're craving the cake or we're worrying and we can get curious like, oh, what does this craving feel like in my body? Is it tightness? Is it tension? Is it heat? Is it restlessness? And we can start to explore all the physical sensations that make up that concept of, of craving or the concept of worry. And we can start to see, oh, these are just these component elements and that they come and go. And by bringing curiosity in, we can watch that nat- natural flow and at the same time build that curiosity, which in itself feels good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and then you've mentioned anxiety and worry. So I know that you talk about anxiety as a habit. Can you get more into that? Because I don't think a lot of people think about it that way. Yes. And I was included in that until just a couple of years ago. You know, I never learned in medical school or residency that anxiety could be driven like a habit. I learned to prescribe medications. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I, you know, I didn't know what was going on um, here. I, you know, I had to go back and look at the literature, and this was actually based on uh, somebody in in, what, in our Eat Right Now app saying, "Hey, could you make a program for anxiety? Because I'm noticing that anxiety is driving my stress eating. Can you help me with that?" And so I went back and looked at the literature, and found that uh, anxiety could be driven like any other habit, and that habit, uh, the way that that works, is you know, any habit is driven by a trigger, a behavior, and a result. And so we started to see, oh, you know, that anxiety is the trigger for worrying as a mental behavior. And that mental behavior is rewarding because it makes it feel makes us feel like either feel like we're in control or it, at least it makes us feel like we're doing something in the in the moment when we're worrying uh, when we don't really have control. Hmm. Interesting. So then how would you break that habit if you feel like you label yourself as an anxious person that worries all the time. Yeah. So we can apply it in the same way to any of these other habits. So we can map out worry habit loops. We can then ask ourselves, you know, when I'm worrying, what am I getting from this? Is it, you know, is it keeping my family member safe? Is it just making me more anxious and feel into our direct experience? And then we can apply curiosity there as well. We can go get really curious. Oh, what does this worrying feel like? Um, and, and start to inject that curiosity. Now, it, it might seem strange that you could actually break the habit of worrying that drives anxiety, 
But in fact, my lab's done several studies here where we, you know, we have this app called Unwinding Anxiety, where we've studied with anxious anxious physicians and found we got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. With we did a study with people with generalized anxiety disorder and got a 67% reduction in wow. these clinically validated measures. So in, in fact, you know, just applying these simple practices, this three-step process, uh, anybody can work with anxiety, even folks at the far end of the spectrum where they're anxious all day. Hmm. And again, how, how much hope that provides, right? That must feel so liberating for somebody to learn that. Absolutely. So then I'm sure there are tons of misconceptions out there about habits. Um, one that I hear, I don't know if this is true or false. You mentioned that with the overeating one, for example, it could take up to 15 times to kind of break that habit. But then I see the other thing of 21 days to break a habit. It seems as if this does take time and you have to engage in this kind of curiosity over and over before breaking the habit, but is the 21 day thing, does that hold any value or no? <laughs> <laughs> I think the 21 day thing is, be, is a, is born out of the fact that information can be easily spread across the internet. Yeah. So somebody at some point, and I haven't, I actually wrote a chapter on this in my unwinding anxiety book, because this question comes up so commonly specifically with 21 days. As best I could trace it, there was a plastic surgeon that wrote a book in the 1960s who talked about how long it took for his patients to get used to their new nose jobs. And it took about three weeks for somebody to get used to a new nose job. And somebody picked that up and spread it like wildfire on the internet. That's very different than actually looking at the neuroscience of how habits are formed and how habits can be broken. And so, you know, the that's why we did our own studies to see, you know, for example, the the habit of overeating. How, you know, what what does it take to change that? So it's individual, but I would say the more somebody pays attention to how unrewarding whatever the habit is that they're trying to break the faster it will go because their brain will naturally say, you know, I'm not that into that anymore. This just doesn't feel as rewarding as I thought. What if it's a habit, like I mentioned of, let's say not exercising. So maybe it feels rewarding because you have more time and you get to kind of watch TV or read a book. Like how would you break that habit? Uh, I'm so glad you asked that question because this is really highlights how we can form good habits and how we can perpetuate and drive those good habits. So as you're talking about, there's our brain is going to pick, you know, sit on the couch, go for, go and exercise, for example, go for a run. And it's really key to reflect. So for example, anytime we exercise, it's really important to reflect on what that feels like mm -hmm. so that we can recall that the positive reward that comes from exercising. So for me, you know, I feel relaxed. I feel energized. I just feel good the rest of the day. And uh, I'll actually use an example of what my wife does when she, you know, we live in Massachusetts and it can be pretty cold here in the winter. And so she's making a decision between like stepping outside to go for a run versus, you know, not exercising. She reminds herself what it was like the last time she ran. And even, you know, especially afterwards, it, it's always felt pretty good for her. And so just that recollection helps kind of load that, uh, that reward value into her working memory. And it makes it much easier to go for a run. 
Mm-hmm. And then every time she does that, that gets reinforced. She can then compare that to what it feels like when she doesn't run. And so if somebody, you know, somebody is convinced that sitting on the couch and watching television is the best thing on earth and they haven't compared that to exercising or if they sit on the couch you know, for, for a year and then they go for a a run once and they're like, well, that sucked. Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's going to be really hard to set good habits, but if we understand how the process works and we work into good habits, you know, in, in a way that, that makes sense, it, you know, the whole system will become self-perpetuating because our bodies tend to like movement, you know, and they, we get those natural rewards that actually feel better than being a couch potato. Yeah, that's interesting as you're talking about that because I recently got into doing more strength training and my husband as well. And I had never kind of let myself get past the first few times of doing it when you're just so sore that you (laughs) don't feel like you can actually function throughout the day. Yeah. So that was past me of just, this is not for me. I can never do this. And this time I actually pushed through and I thought it has to get better because people do this all the time. I mean, they're not walking around, you know, that sore all the time. So it was kind of getting over that hump. And now like you're saying, I just think of how great it makes me feel. Not in the moment, (laughs) definitely, you know, and usually there are things I'd rather be doing, but I have kind of a memory bank now of Mm -hmm. how great it feels afterwards. And that has really inspired me to keep going. And I don't feel nearly as sore the day after anymore as I used to. Um, But I love that. I love that example of exercise because I do know you know, it is easier sometimes, especially as you're describing, if it's cold outside, if there's a cozy, warm blanket and a television show calling your name, you, <laughs> you definitely have to build up those kind of memories and feelings, right? So that you have something to fall back on. Absolutely. And I'll just highlight one other thing. And I, I think your example is a great one. We, in the moment when we are exercising, so for example, if, if, you, if someone is strength training, they can be looking at that moment where they're like, oh, this is going to suck. It's so hard to you know, do this. Or they can bring curiosity to those moments as well and mm-hmm. say like, oh, I wonder what this next rep will feel like. What, what, what does my muscle actually feel like you know, as I'm lifting this heavy weight? And so here we can even focus on the, that, that momentary experience where, you know, for example, strength training, doesn't have to be that slog that we look forward to getting over with, but Mm -hmm. it can even be that moment where we get to explore, well, what's it like to exert myself physically? And actually, can I relax mentally as I'm exerting myself physically? There's so much that can be explored there to really bring that process, you know, right into the present moment. So we're not looking forward to the future you know, when this is over and then I can be like, oh, I'm so glad I did that workout. Mm-hmm. We can, we can add those two together. And how much more powerful that is. than, like you said earlier, just relying on willpower or motivation whenever it strikes to get into this habit of curiosity and kindness. And yeah, I, I just love that. That's great. Uh, I once interviewed a close friend of mine who was also a celebrity trainer for a bunch of the bigwigs. And he said in our interview that he never wants to work out. He absolutely never relies on willpower or motivation. I mean, that's his job, you know, but he's saying like that, you just have to start, you just have to do it. 
and then you have to tune in, like you're saying, to the feeling afterwards. But we can't just always think we're going to jump up and down for doing the things that make us feel our best. Absolutely. I know also, speaking of words and ideas spreading on the interwebs, um, people will just throw around this idea of mindfulness. So I'd love if you could just kind of touch on, I think maybe you already have a bit of just being curious and kind to yourself, but what does it really mean to be mindful if it's something beyond that? Well, I think, you know, and like you're pointing out, mindfulness is, is you know, there are a thousand different definitions of what mindfulness is. So I like to break it down to its component elements that are very concrete. And so there are two elements. One is awareness and another is this attitude of curiosity or some describe it as non-judgment. And if you bring those two together, I think of the, them as being two sides of the same coin. We can be aware of something. We can be judging it like, oh, that sucks. You know, I'm, I'm strength training. Oh, it sucks to be strength training. Or we can be aware of what's happening in our body as we're going through, a, you know, through an exercise and we can be curious, oh, what's this feel like? So I think of it as really bringing, you know, awareness to what's happening, but being being curious, being open to what's happening rather than prejudging what's happening. Okay. And then aside from doing the curiosity question, do you have any tips or tangible actions people can take to become more mindful, especially when we have technology and we're busy? I, I think it's really developing that attitude of curiosity. I think of curiosity as a superpower. And in mm. one sense, so one way, you, and, and I think we can also be playful with the experience because often we take life way too seriously. So, mm. you know, I, I write about this in the Unwinding Anxiety book where I, I, you know, I give people a mantra, you know, and the mantra is, hmm, you know, because that's something, you know, when we're really curious about something, no matter what culture we're in, as far as everyone that I've, I've looked at, there seems to be a way that we vocalize that. It could be, oh, or, hmm, or, Ugh, you know, that type of thing. But what that does is it really just opens us to our experience and helps us kind of awaken our curiosity. Like, oh, you know, what is happening in my body right now? You know, when I'm, when I'm lifting this heavy weight. So that's one very simple, concrete thing that uh, that I use. I've, a number of therapists have picked up on that and use that with their clients, you know, to help mm. their clients with anxiety or whatever is to is to really inject some curiosity in that way. I love that. Uh, aside from the whole twenty one day thing, are there other misconceptions out there about habits that you could kind of bust for us? <laughs> Well, the, the willpower is the biggest myth that I see, you know, that's actually been traced back. Um, yeah, a long time. Let's say there was a, there was a relief in the Parthenon in, in you know, from, from Athens, I believe, um, from, you know, like 450 AD or something where, you know, this has been around for forever. So I think that's the main one for folks to pay attention to, uh, other things about habits. It's, it's, you know, I would say one of them is, uh, it, you know, just repeating things where, you know, it, to create a habit, yes, it's very helpful to repeat things over and over and over. But the, the strongest way to set a habit is to really focus on its reward value, which I think a lot of people, you know, that's one of the myths is, you know, if you just do the behavior or break the behavior, 
then you're all set. But reward-based learning is based on how rewarding something is. And so we really have to focus on the reward value uh, by checking in, like, what did I get from this? So I would mm -hmm. say that's the other thing uh, that I would have folks focus on. When you were doing the research for your book and writing your book, is there anything that you changed your mind about? It's a great question. The, you know, the book actually came out of uh, kind of an inspiration. I wasn't planning to write it, but I'd been doing a bunch of research and a bunch of practice in my clinic for years and years. And it kind of all culminated after we'd finished these clinical studies and I'd seen some major effects in, in a lot of my patients. So I wouldn't say, I can't think of anything that, that changed as I was writing the book, but there are a lot of things that changed in the process, you know, in the 10 years of doing the work before I was writing the book. And the big thing that changed for me uh, was really seeing that that anxiety could be driven as a habit. You know, I thought mm -hmm. it was just, you know, just a physical sensations that people had to take medications for. And that was really, that really was not the, you know, didn't turn out to be the biggest driving force. For example, you know, when I prescribe medications, there's this term in medicine called number needed to treat, where it's like how many people you need to give a medication to or any treatment to before somebody benefits significantly. So for medications, that number is just over five, uh, 5.15, meaning I've got to treat five patients before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. Yeah. When we did our, uh, the, our studies with our Unwinding Anxiety app, that number needed to treat for people with generalized anxiety disorder was 1.6. Hmm. And so that really changed my mind in terms of thinking of medications as, as like the first line go-to. It's not that I don't prescribe medications for patients. Certainly, you know, I, I do, uh, but it's really it shows how if we train people how their minds work, they can work with their own minds in a way that's that's potentially much more efficacious than just giving them a medication. Wow. What questions do you still have that you're researching or yeah, I guess any new research that you're starting now? One of the questions that we've been exploring is we've just finished this study the one that I was mentioning with the generalized anxiety disorder with, and we found that there are there are certain personality types where it's a, we think of these as psychological phenotypes where at baseline we can have people answer as few as 19 questions in these standard psychological questionnaires and we can with that we can have uh, we can kind of get a sense for how well they're going to do with an app-based mindfulness training program. And in general, people do very, very well. As I mentioned, we got this 67% reduction in anxiety, but there's a small subset of folks that don't do very well. And so we can now identify who those folks are and we can start to explore like, what is it? What's the extra little booster shot that they're going to need to really benefit from this program? Or, you know, are they really not going to benefit from a mindfulness training and do we need to refer them elsewhere? And so that's one of the, that's one of the questions that we're exploring now. And my sense is that it's a matter, these folks may be more, a little, uh, a little more experientially avoidant. Like they're really not comfortable with unpleasant sensations in their bodies, for example. Huh. And there may be a way to 
help them start to become more aware and more familiar with those things so that they can they can really not only benefit uh, when we're helping them with anxiety, but it might help them in other aspects of their life as well. There's this saying, you might've heard it, the only way out is through. Have you mm-hmm. heard that saying? I have, yeah. Yeah. So here, you know, the only way out of anxiety is actually through the experience, like learning to be with the physical sensations and not fear them, not run away from them. Uh, and, and what that does is actually strengthens us quite a bit because we can learn that we can be with unpleasant sensations. We're, you know, humans, as humans, life is going to be filled with things that are unpleasant. So the idea is, can we learn to tolerate them? Can we develop a distress tolerance that will help us not only in this aspect of life with anxiety, for example, but with many other things as well? Can you describe your app more and kind of how somebody would sign up for it and what the process is of moving through it? I'd be happy to. So anybody can download this, you know, on the Apple or the Google platforms, the Unwinding Anxiety app. And the idea is that we give them short bite-sized pieces of training uh, in a sequential manner. So the core program is 30 modules where it's about 10 minutes a day where they get videos, animations, in the moment exercises that helps them first understand where anxiety comes from, helps them start to map out their own anxiety habit loops. Uh, the second step is, as we, you and I had talked about, you know, helping them see how unrewarding worrying is or whatever their anxiety habit is. It could be procrastination. It could be stress eating. It could be whatever. And then the third step, it trains them specifically to help them tap into their natural capacities to be kind and curious. So 30 core modules, exercises that they can go to, you know, every day or just in time, like just in the moments so that they're having anxiety. And then there are a bunch of theme weeks that help build those practices even more so they can really, really get this stuff into their bones. Wow. How cool. I'm so in awe of anybody who creates an app. It seems like one of those lofty goals of mine, but that's really incredible and so accessible for people. I ask each of my guests a final question, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Uh, what a great question. So what does it mean to make the health investment for what I would answer for myself? And I would probably say this for others as well, is to really invest in you know, what is meaningful for us, like what makes us feel healthy, both physically and mentally, because often we, you know, we, we think, oh, I'm going to focus on my, you know, eating healthily, trying to exercise, all this stuff. And we don't actually invest in the whole us, which mm-hmm. has a whole lot to do <laughs> with, with our minds. You know, our minds are not disconnected from our bodies. And so I would say making that complete investment in the whole us, which includes the body, the mind, some describe it as the body, mind, spirit. And that's really the, you know, the diversified portfolio, if you want to think of it that way in terms of that health investment. Yeah, I love that. Where can listeners follow and find you? We mentioned your app and then your book is the best place, Amazon, for that? Yeah. So anywhere books are sold, uh, they can get more information. We've got a bunch of free resources also on my website, which is just drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com. A bunch because I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about helping to educate people around their own minds. So we've got a bunch of animations, videos, um, blog posts, things like that, that, that help people understand that. 
I've, I've on Twitter at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R, Instagram at uh, Dr. Judd, D-R dot J-U-D. And I also have a YouTube channel under Dr. Judd that's got a bunch of videos that helps people uh, specifically focusing around anxiety. So everywhere, right? <laughs> You're literally everywhere. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. That's great. I'll put all links to all of those in the show notes. Great. And then I know you have a couple of other apps. You mentioned the Eat Right Now app. What is? How does somebody sign up for that one? And what does that do? Yes. So that helps people, anybody that's struggling with stress eating or overeating or binge eating or, or anything where they're struggling with habitual eating, basically, uh, they can they can get information on the uh, the website's goeatrightnow.com. Uh, they can also just download the app uh, Eat Right Now from uh, you know from the the iTunes Store or the uh, the Google Play Store. And then we've got this smoking app called uh, Craving to Quit uh, that can help people who are struggling with uh, trying to quit smoking or also trying to quit vaping. And that's uh, I think the website for that is just cravingtoquit.com. Oh, wow. Okay. Awesome. So yeah, I'll link all of those things. And I just want to thank you so much. This was really fascinating. And I too love learning how the mind works. And Mm -hmm. it's really cool. I think when you don't have to accept sort of the way you think now or the anxiety you feel now as just something that you have to live with forever. And it just, I think is going to give a lot of hope to a lot of people that there is ways you can kind of unwind it and unpack it and Get curious. That's what I took away from this. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, I love, there's a quote, uh, I think it was James Stevens, the Irish poet and author who said, you know, curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. I absolutely mm. love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really powerful. <laughs> I'm going to think about that now for, <laughs> go down a rabbit hole thinking about that for the rest of the day. Well, thank you so, so much for being here. And I just look forward to staying connected. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.